So for those of you who weren't on Facebook to see yesterday, Noah lost his first tooth, or at least he, I, had, I pulled his first tooth, I should say, and it was true that, and he got to, he felt, he felt like bragging because the stories are legendary, uh, passed down by Rebecca, of the trauma she received having her teeth pulled. And so Joshua and Josiah and all of them have been, you know, scared, and, and here's Noah, Mr. Brave, and so... He, 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 had to, he had to rub it in their face, and so I had to say, no, we don't rub it in their face. And so um, I'm reminded that, that, that uh, you know, feeling proud of one's accomplishments is not just an adult thing, it's even, even kids. And uh, so anyway, well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Philippians 1. Our verse for today is a verse. Uh, as we were concluding this book... We, I was trying to say, all right, so what, what verse do I believe most concisely summarizes this book for us? And I believe that verse is Philippians 1.27. So Philippians 1.27 then is what we will be reading. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have given this word to us, that you have given us this beautiful book to give us exhortations and encouragements, even warnings to live as citizens of our heavenly kingdom. And we pray that you would be with us in this time as we seek to consolidate and and wrap up this whole series, that you would take this verse, this passage, this book, and cause it to take root in our lives. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. Well, it was the first Sunday of April, April 3rd, when we commenced this series in the book of Philippians. So it's been a little over 16 weeks of going through the book, and I think we've covered it pretty thoroughly. Uh, I'm sure Martin Lloyd-Jones could have spent a few years in it, but I feel like some of you uh, may have wanted me to move on a little quicker than that. So, 16 weeks in this book. We've covered a lot of ground. And the, the basic theme that we have to address when we, when we write when we look at this book, is the fact that we have here in the Philippians a church that was unique amongst the other churches of Paul's ministry or the New Testament era in that they existed in a geographic area in which they uniquely were citizens of Rome. And this citizenship of Rome brought with it special prerogatives and privileges, but also some unique challenges. 
And so the entire book needs to be looked at through that lens of here's a people who are struggling with their dual identity. They're struggling on the one hand because they are adult converts in in a pagan environment to Christianity, and Christianity says there is only one Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And Lord of Lords was a title used by Caesar. And so when the Roman neighbors of theirs and friends and family members talked about Lord of Lords, they thought about Caesar, and now these Christians are saying, no, Jesus is Lord of Lords. And so there was some pressure from outside the church to meet cultural expectations and the obligations that being good Romans had for them. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, being born and raised Romans in honor society where, where rank and position have privilege and you treat someone in accordance with their position and place. That baggage carried into the church was making it hard for them to get along. It's hard to get along with someone where everything in your background teaches you that you are superior to them or perhaps inferior to them. And so they were fearing, feeling the pressures from inside and outside the church and it was making life hard for them. And so this whole book is written around the idea of us having our citizenship in heaven And now, as citizens of heaven, we need to begin modeling the traits and characteristics of our new residency. So, when we step into our own era and age, we see that we ourselves are kind of in the same boat. In fact, um, as Christians, we are embodied beings. And we live and we find ourselves located in a particular geographic area. Uh, Every Christian has found themselves within a particular culture. That's the way it is. Us, we're born in America. Mid, late 20th century. And our cultural background shapes our perspectives and our outlooks of how people should be treated. What's right and what's wrong? What's acceptable? What's not acceptable? Our culture conditions us even to think a certain way about God. And so, because of our background, we, like every generation of Christians that have come before us, struggle with the fact that we have on the one hand that identity, but yet, oh yeah, we are citizens of another kingdom. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, an eternal kingdom that offers us a different outlook, that is governed by a different ethic, that is driven by a different goal, that rewards different behavior. And so how do we do this? How do we live as Americans, as Englishmen, as Germans, as, 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 as Indians, as Pakistanis, as whatever you are to the flesh, while at the same time being a faithful Christian. It is incredibly difficult for many to isolate out this is what's American and this is what's Christian. They're easy to point at because it's so obvious to us from our historical vantage point, 
But the Germans of the 1930s had a very hard time distinguishing what was Christian and what was German. And so it led them down a road that was horrible. And so every age has this difficulty. Now, if this book is written primarily about helping us sort out what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven even as I walk as a citizen of a particular nation state, then I think that what this book does best when you survey the whole thing is I think it highlights the differences in your old culture with that of your new one, your adopted one. And so what I want to do today, as we're sort of drawing this series to a close, rather than simply repeating what's been said in the previous 16 weeks, what I want to do is highlight the fact that our new kingdom, our new home of residency, offers us some awesome, awesome differences. And I want you, as you're sitting there listening, to sort of compare and contrast the values, ethics, priorities of your new residency with your native-born values, priorities, perspectives. And see, okay, how can I, as an ambassador of Christ in this world, as a sojourner in this land, how can I then apply the principles that have been set out in this book so that I can live as a more joyous citizen of heaven in a pagan land. So, I think that as we look at this book in its total, that theme of the difference in culture, the difference in citizenship expectations, can be seen in five areas. We are, as Christians, animated by a different dream. We are characterized by a different disposition. We embrace a different duty. We are propelled by a different delight. And we look forward to a different destiny. So dream, disposition, duty, delight, destiny. This book and its sum total parts addresses these issues. Now, there may be some of you who, as we go through this, some of you may say, you know, I don't have this. I'm driven primarily by, by, my, by my culture's values in these areas. If that's you, please, after the service, see me or one of the elders or, or even one of the deacons, and we will be happy to show you how Jesus, the King and Lord of this universe, invites you into his kingdom and offers you citizenship into his kingdom and adoption as one of his siblings. So first, we are to be animated by a different dream. Okay, some of you remember and most of us have read or listened to uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech from uh, August 28th of 63 when they were in Washington. You know, I have a dream and he gives this vision of of a time or a place, of of a situation in which there is racial harmony. Okay, it's a famous speech. But his dream was for racial harmony. A dream is this captivating vision that 
you believe can be realized, and so you work towards it. In America, the dominant dream is called the American dream. And in America, we're told that prosperity, upward mobility, success, making oneself materially and financially better is possible if you work hard, if you, um, if you put forward some good self-determination and a lot of hard effort. So hard work, determination, and effort makes one's lot better. And so the dream for the longest time was this house, you know, picket fence, car, retiring in their 50s, maybe 60s now. That's the American dream, is that if I work hard, I can make my lot better. Now, the Christian is called to a different kind of dream. Our dream is to be a world in which the glory of Christ covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. We are to be driven by a vision of the beauty and all-satisfying nature of Christ so that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, no matter what social situation we endure, we have the realization of this goal ever before us. And so we seek with all our might to make Jesus look great and to try to compel others to see it for themselves. The vision of the Christian is not for arms treaties and global education and health care, as good as these things may be. The vision for a Christian is the need for people to bow the knee to King Jesus before anything else can happen. The vision for a Christian is that we want ourselves to be so given in pursuit of the magnification of Christ's name that like Paul, we can say, for me to live is Christ. That's the Christian's vision. So the culture of the kingdom of God is driven by that dream. The dream where Jesus is made much of where people find their rest and their solace in Him. And that all earthly pursuits are ordered in light of that. I invite you to adopt that kingdom dream. But second, we've seen in this book that a Christian is called to be characterized by a different perspective or a different disposition. People in our day are very disposed to thinking highly of themselves. I mean, we're told that we're great. We get awards just for participation, unless you're in the Olympics, in which merit counts. But we're told to think very highly of yourself. You can do it. You're the best. And so we nurse our grievances when someone offends us. We insist on our rights. And much like Aretha Franklin... The theme song for many of our lives is R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what it means to me. Come on, give me some respect. Sock it to me. Respect. That's what we want. We want respect. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to be angry. And yet, and yet, 
Christians are called to a different disposition. Right out of the gate, we were struck by the uniqueness of this opening, these opening verses in Philippians, where Paul, the great apostle, he puts himself on the same plane with a mere student. And he, writing to people who were proud of their citizenship and their elevated status, he refers to himself as merely a slave, thereby showing us that the value of a person's worth in the kingdom is not bound up in their disposition or their position. It's not bound up in their social status or social standing. It's bound up in one's identification with Christ because, oh yeah, as we see in chapter 2, our great example is that of Jesus himself who gave up everything. He's equal with God in every way. And he sets aside all the rights and privileges of deity and assumes flesh. And he's born under the law. He suffers death, even death on a cross. Total abject humiliation for us. And so, we are called, imitate that. You live in a culture that tells you if you've accomplished much, expect much respect. But in the kingdom... He who gives much, he who serves much, is the one you show respect to and the one you honor. And that's why we saw Epaphroditus and Timothy being held forward as good examples. These are men who had sacrificed everything for the good of their brothers and sisters. So the disposition to insist upon respect and one's rights is set aside in the kingdom. And what is honored is not the most impressive resume, but the most selfless service. Is that your disposition? Or do you want us taking note of what you've done? But also, the disposition that should characterize us according to this book is in stark contrast to the spirit of our age in which there's this simmering this simmering cynicism and discontent and angst. I mean, just watch the news. I, I don't, I don't, I've stopped watching the news. It's just, it, there's just angst from, from Black Lives Matter to, to all the stuff on college campuses. To, there's just people are angry and they're churning and they're, they're not happy. And, and in the face of that, what is the attitude that we are called to? To joy. And Paul calls us to this even though he's in prison. Joy. Do you remember how we defined and described joy? It's, an, it's not an emotion. It's an upbeat attitude or disposition that is based upon our confidence in God's sure word concerning the past, the present, and the future. Because of what God has done in the past, we can have confidence in what God is doing in the future. And armed with our knowledge of what God has done and will be doing, that means that in the midst of the present in which we can't see what God is up to, we can have great confidence that our present circumstances have meaning and significance. And so we know the end of the story. Jesus wins, every knee bows. 
And so you can look at your most mundane, humdrum situation as something purposeful. And so you can be upbeat and joyful in the face of a culture of angst and cynicism. But then, flowing from that joy, we can be content. We can learn contentment. Even though discontentment comes quite naturally to our sinful hearts, Nonetheless, all the good that Christ has done to us can be appropriated by faith and we can learn to embrace contentment. Because where Christ has us and what he's appointed to us is our duty assignment. You're on a mission. What is your circumstance right now? Stay-at-home mom raising three kids, husband working a dead-end job, someone caring for a, a, a loved one, I don't know, but it's your duty assignment. And so we can learn contentment. And as we saw, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's what we're called to. Setting aside our rights. Serving even as Christ served, knowing that it's the one that serves that is honored in the ethic of the kingdom. A whole different value. Joy, because in the midst of the uncertainty of the present, we know the past and we know the future. So, we are to be characterized by a different disposition. Third, we are called to embrace a different duty. Now, duty is not something we talk about in mainstream American culture. I get it. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't have duties as citizens. Uh, duties refer to those obligations and responsibilities that I have to do whether I feel like it or not. Fathers, husbands, you have, an, you have a duty to provide for your family. You may feel like, uh, like quitting your job and, and going to just fish all day every day, but you can't do it. You have a duty to provide for your family. Okay, um, Roman citizens had lots of duties, so they were familiar with the concept of duty. What was harder for them was understanding what duties they had to each other as Christians. Now, even though we're not Romans with all the duties they had, nonetheless, there are some actual duties that American citizens have. For example, you have a duty to show up and, and serve on a, do, uh, on a jury if, if, if summoned. That's one of your duties of citizenship. Okay, as Christians, we actually have duties to one another. And that's hard for us to wrap our mind around because we like thinking of ourselves primarily as consumers. I come here to get fed. I come here to get encouraged. I come here to get ministered to. But we have duties to each other. And so, um, you know, in our American culture, since we don't really think in terms of duty so much, I, I, I guess the, the biggest social responsibility thing that Americans think they have to one another is to, is to stay out of trouble. If I'm staying out of trouble, and if I'm not being a nuisance to you, then I've done what I'm supposed to do. And brothers and sisters, there are too many of us who think that's the way it is in the church, that as long as I'm not being a burden, as long as I'm not being a bother, then I'm doing my job as a Christian. And the truth is, is that we are called to a different kind of duty. 
It's a kind of duty that calls us to stand shoulder to shoulder with one another. And we saw how in this book, he uses the image of the phalanx, where each person is called to defend the other. How the, my shield protects you, his shield protects me, and so forth, down the line. In the kingdom, our duty means that we recognize that there is an organic unity to us. And so if something bad happens to you, it's not isolated to you and to your family as to the flesh. No, if something bad happens to you, it has repercussions for all of us here. And if something good happens to you, it has repercussions for us as well. And so because there is an organic unity to us, our duty to each other is to make sure that you don't fall. I am to lay down my rights. I am to lay down my agenda. And I am to think of your interests, not only my own. That's the duty of the kingdom. And so, it creates an environment, when done rightly, that you know I'm cared for. That if I start stumbling, someone's going to come along to help, help stabilize me. Where if I, if I start lowering my shield, someone's going to come along and perhaps wrap me on the back of the head to make me lift my shield up again. Because what happens to you affects us. You are cared for and you are valued and you are necessary to us. And because of that, we're not just going to let you slip and, 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 and go out the door. The, the duty we have then calls for being profoundly others-oriented. So, are you feeling alone? Feeling isolated? Maybe it's time to adopt the duty of the gospel. And as a church be the body of Christ to each other so that we can stand arm and arm, shoulder to shoulder, defending as one person the gospel. Fourth, as we become enculturated to the values and ethics and priorities of the kingdom, we are called to pursue a different delight. Now, when I say delight, I don't just mean something that people like to do that makes them happy. No, when something is your delight, it's precious to you. And you protect it. You nurture it. You're proud of it. You boast about it. You hold it up so people can gaze at its marvelous wonder. And in this world, there are many things in which people can delight, but two very common things that people delight in are their attainments and the pursuit of their passions. If I pursue what makes me happy, then I'm happy. And I love to show and boast about all my freedoms and all the stuff that I can do because this is what I like. Or, with regards to my attainments, I put a lot of stock in what I've accomplished and what I've done. And this is the burden of Paul in chapter 3 of this book to say that as Christians we are called to a different delight. Whereas the world tries to find great standing in what they've done or their, what they're able to do with their free time, we recognize that that is not our source of hope and delight. 
No. If we are trying to delight in our attainments, we recognize that there is no acceptability with God. I have seen far too many times someone nearing the end of their life and I've been in the room with them as they recount their life story in which they want to go over all the good things they've done, the good father they've been, the good parent, the good spouse they were, the good employer they were, the good employee they were. And they're wanting affirmation that, yeah, you were a good person because they're hoping, they're banking upon this. And so when trouble strikes, people want to bank on all that stuff. Oh, my money can get me out of it. My experience can get me out of it. My family can get me out of it. Whatever. But we are called to a different delight. We're called to say, no, none of this stuff, none of this stuff helps me in my relationship with God. The only thing that secures my standing before the Father is Jesus' blood and righteousness credited to me by God's grace received through faith. So our delight then, the thing we boast in, the thing we show off and say, hey, this is awesome, is Jesus' righteousness given to us. We don't boast about our education and our, and our pocketbook and our pedigree. We boast in Christ's righteousness. That's our delight. And then with that freedom from the law of sin and death, we know that we were called to delight in pursuing the righteousness for which he took hold of us. And so we don't boast in the kind of shameful things that you see people boasting in. Because we know that they are glorying in their shame. And in the words of Paul, their end is destruction. And so we recognize that we were not saved by works. We were saved for good works. All in orientation towards back to that dream we have of the world making much of Christ. So, what's your delight? When you evaluate your life and the things you put the most stock in, is it your family? Is it your kids? Is it your background? Is it your, your godly heritage upbringing? Is it, is it where you went to school? Is it how many employees you have? What is it? Or is it the shed blood of Jesus Christ given to you? What is your delight? We're called to delight in that. So, having looked at all those things, what undergirds then our sense of purpose in the present is our expectation and looking forward to a different destiny. And isn't that the end game? Everyone dies. Sorry to be a bummer to give you the downer right now, but unless Jesus comes back, it's been appointed unto man once to die. Everyone dies. And the reality of the matter is, is that cultures across the world, they try to process that in different ways. They try to help their people deal with it in different ways. But at the end of the day, the world experiences death as loss. And so the best that people hope for is a good legacy. Or they hope that perhaps they can die in, in support of a greater cause that's going to outlive them. Or they or whatever, because for them personally, though, 
It's loss. And so what the Christian is called to recognize is as we are pursuing that dream, as Jesus is our everything, when we die, we actually flip the world's logic on its head and experience dying as gain. Because Jesus is the one thing you get more of when you die. Your money, your husband, your wife, your kids, your, your lifestyle, whatever it is you're putting your stock in, it goes away. But if you're trusting in Christ and you're pursuing Christ with all of your might, when you die, you get more of the very thing you've been spending your life on. So how is it loss? And so if we have that expectation of that destiny, it enables us to be fearless in any circumstance, to be positive in any situation. It enables us to say, you know what? Kill me if you will, but Jesus will be glorified and I will be with him and great will be my reward. So, when you're in the hospital and you're on your back and the medical staff is around you and they, they, they think something bad's going to happen and you... Say, you know what? It is well with my soul. 60, 70, 80 plus years, Jesus has been my Savior. He's been my Lord. And I'm about to enter His presence forevermore. I'm telling you, it speaks volumes of the satisfying capacity of Jesus. I've been in the hospital rooms where people are crying, they're pleading to stay alive. Because when they die, they lose everything. But for us, when we die, we gain everything. And what's awesome is that we tend to sometimes shortchange our destiny. We think, oh, when we die, we get to go be with Jesus in heaven. And yeah, that's great, that's wonderful, but did you know that's only half of it? That in the final analysis, when Jesus returns, our bodies are going to come out of the ground and be reanimated. And our souls will be rejoined with our bodies. And we will spend forever as embodied beings. Even as Jesus is alive forevermore, we too will be. And so we spend forever and ever and ever in the new earth as embodied beings, able to hug able to run, able to jump, able to play, able to work, and no corruption or taint by sin. That is our destiny. Forevermore, enjoying the benefits of the inheritance purchased for us by Christ. All of His riches given to us by grace, received by faith. And so in this life, yeah, we struggle with how to be a good citizen. But recognize, we are sojourners here. We're not so much American as we are Christian. And for many of us, it's uncomfortable because we've grown up thinking ourselves as American first. But now the culture's changing so much where we're seeing we're out of step with our culture in a lot of ways. But our Christian hope calls us 
to an ethic and a value system and a priority structure that is radically different. And it enables us, in the words of Paul, to shine like lights in the midst of a dark and crooked generation. So, as we wrap up this series, the study of this book, recognize that having received Christ's forgiveness and adoption into his family, you were brought into citizenship in a new kingdom. And this world, which in a very real sense is falling apart at the seams, needs now just as much, if not more than ever, to see and hear that there is a better way. And that is through Christ himself. Will you adopt the values of the kingdom? Will you adopt the disposition, the dream, the delight? Will you accept the duties and look forward to the destiny that is offered to you in the gospel? That's what this book is about. So it's my hope and prayer for you that all the days of your life, Philippians would have a special place in your heart as its many encouragements as its many exhortations invite us to understand just a little bit better what it means to be citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And as you go through this life, stumbling and bumbling and bouncing your way through it because we're all sinners, remember that as Paul makes abundantly clear, he who began the good work in us is faithful and will bring it to completion. And even though we are called to work out our salvation, with fear and trembling. Remember, it is the Holy Spirit who works and wills within you for His good purpose. You are a beloved child of God if you are in Christ. And the end is sure. So, enjoy the benefits of citizenship and invite others to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this day, for this time. For the good news that we are citizens of an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will one day fill the earth. We pray that we would adopt the values and priorities, the way of thinking and living as, as good Christians. And we pray that we would be witnesses for Jesus Christ in this dark age, that other people would be would see and hear of your goodness and greatness and that you would draw them through our example and words into relationship with yourself. Thank you for this wonderful book and we ask that as we depart this place today that you would emblazon in our souls that we are yours. In Christ's name we pray, amen.